Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Powerful words in that song for what we're about, who we are, what Christ promises to do in us. You know what I think is a huge problem in the church, though? Us. Yeah, that's a good thing. Narcissism. Do you like narcissism? All in favor of narcissism, raise your hand. Okay, good. Just checking. I, I found a quiz today, sort of. Fifteen ways you can tell if you're a narcissist. You ever wake up in the morning and wonder, am I a narcissist? If you wake up and wonder that, 15, that's a lot of things. Number one, you enjoy telling others what to do. Who doesn't really, right? You are an entertainer. Okay, well, just, you hate, here's why it's interesting. You hate having to feel emotions. The idea being, you hate that anybody can have any effect on you. That makes you a narcissist. You are young and male. I just read the list. I don't make it. You're attractive and you dress pretty stylishly. You like to swear at people. Anyone want to admit that in church? Yes. Yeah, exactly. You... You don't really listen. You're thinking about what you want to say. Yeah. You cheat in relationships. Is the one side. The other side is in relationships, you're usually the one getting dumped after about four months. Which I thought was a really weird thing until I read more. And apparently, four months is the magic mark in a relationship where the other person sees the true you and sees that you're really into you and not them until they kick you to the curb. You put people on pedestals. Which again, I thought that's weird. You put people on pedestals, that makes you a narcissist. Because the next one is, you like to put others down. So I think whoever wrote this was a little confused at times. So if you, if you put people on pedestal and you tear people down, I guess it's... Anyway, I'm just reading the list. Your parents both ignored you and adored you. I know, isn't it though, psychologist lady? You choose friends. This is number 13. We're almost there, I promise. I hope nobody's getting a perfect score. You choose friends because they make you look cool and that you can take advantage of their connections or other ways to get you ahead in life. Number 14. If you're not grandiose, then you're introverted, hypersensitive, defensive, and anxious. So basically, if you have any personality at all, you're a narcissist, according to that one. And last, but certainly not least, it kind of goes back to number one. You have to be in control. Any control freaks in the house? Okay, good. Yep, there we go. So, so you know, today that's your uh, make you feel better about yourself quiz. Maybe not. Interesting that that, that was kind of one of the headlines on the, on the website I, I go to to check the news in the morning, 15 ways to tell you're a narcissist. I think about, you know, even what we... We do sometimes as, as churches versus some of the words we just sang. Because that song was all about God building his kingdom here. And the, the words were about how he could, could do some things even miraculously. The, the hurt, the poor, 
peace, that he would heal, that he would redeem, that that we as his church would be the, the means through which he worked out his kingdom here on earth. And too often we as as God's people get so caught up in, in ourselves and, and what we think and what we want, and it particularly shows itself as we relate to those who are outside of the church or not of the same faith, that, that we kind of have a we're right and you're wrong. And I know the reason we might feel that way, but the way that's presented often. And if you look at that list, you could see in, in Christianity a lot of the things that, that are there about wanting to tell others what to do and, and putting people down and, and, and all of those things. And we, we see that, that that becomes or can become negative characteristics of Christianity. So I want to spend some time today looking at a very interesting passage of Scripture. It's actually the one we just talked about briefly on Wednesday night. On Wednesday night in our, our prayer and Bible study time, we've been going through the book of Romans. Romans is an interesting book. It's the, one of the largest of the letters of Paul. In fact, I think I've said this before, when you look at the New Testament, the letters of Paul, 13 of them, mostly are organized by length, and Romans being kind of one of the longer ones. And it's, it's kind of thick. You get some, some pretty heady theology in the book of Romans. It's kind of a, a broad uh, spectrum look at what Paul wanted to preach and present and how he wrote and, and, and this kind of put it all together in one. In fact, we know it's thick because Peter writes in one of his letters when he talks about what Paul wrote, he says Paul's sometimes kind of hard to understand, which made me feel better. Doesn't it make you feel better that Peter, you remember him, right? Fisherman, pillar of the New Testament church said when he read Paul, sometimes it's hard to understand the letters that Paul wrote. He's even saying that. We'll get to Romans, and, and, and the first 11 chapters are, are full of all sorts of things. And we've had some pretty lively discussions, who, who, right? Wednesday night, we kind of had some interesting give and take. And this is kind of like a mini um, um, uh, ad commercial for Wednesday night. It's sort of worthwhile sometimes to come and get together. Because it's not like this where you kind of sit with a larger group, and, and I talk, and, and you check your watches. It's like you're sitting in a circle, and I see it. Sit in a circle, and, and I might say some things, and then we get kind of some give and take. And Romans has, has really been good that way. And, and at the end of chapter 11, which has spawned some rather interesting discussions, and, and, and 10, 11, 9 through 11 really is kind of a, a unit, Paul ends chapter 11 with this doxology of sorts, this this declaration of some 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 pretty marvelous things. And, and I love it because as we've talked about it on Wednesday night, as we've maybe tried to look at different sides of, of what it means to talk about predestination and election and all, which is always fun to get into, Paul ends it by stepping back out of that discussion, out of that argument, and showing kind of the big picture of, of the God that he serves. And he begins... Uh, in verse 33, I think we've got the, the, the verses up here. These, these are the ESV. Somebody asked me, I think it was Denise, what version are you throwing up on the screen? So I'm telling you, this is all the ESV today, English Standard Version, um, for the record, if you care. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him.
him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So be it. Truth. Drop the mic. Walk out. Now that's how I end. Drop the mic. Where's that thing? Um, thank you. I feel good. Note to self. That was that from Teacher Notes. Paul gives this incredible, kind of like he's, he's written all of these 11 chapters. And if you remember, we've talked about this as well when we say, Paul didn't actually write. He didn't sit down at a desk and labor over it or sit down at his typewriter and type it out. He's dictating. He has a, a secretary, the, the, the fun word to impress your friends with, the amanuensis. He has a guy that's sitting there and taking down what he's saying. And I, I picture Paul because I see this stuff in my head as, as he's like pacing and, and he's, he's been saying all this good, heady theological stuff and, and he's getting wound up. And then he just can't help it. Paul's not one given to poetry. He's not one given to these expressions because there's a little bit too much emotion in there. See, that's that number seven or so on the list. He just wouldn't want to go there. But all of a sudden, he just can't contain himself anymore. And he just has to say, oh, the greatness and the glory and the majesty of our God. What does that mean for us? So I want to look at some things I think we can kind of anchor into that might fight against some of the incipient narcissism. That's a fun word, isn't it? That creeps into us. Because here's the thing. and here's If nothing else, I should always do this. If nothing else, get this. It's not about you. In fact, why don't you just look at the person beside you, in front of you, behind you, the person that really needs to hear this. No, I'm just kidding. Tell each other, it's not about you. It's not. At all. About you. Oh, look at that. That one rebel over here. It's all about you, baby. Oh, whatever. If only it was that simple. <laughs> what does this tell us that we can latch on to? Well, what does it say in verse, verse 33? How does he start? Oh, the depths of the riches of God. God is filthy, stinking rich. That's a headline. Put that in the newspaper. Oh, the depths of the riches of God. What does it mean that God is wealthy? Now, probably the most popular verse we often camp out on is, He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. You've probably heard that. Which is great, except who here owns cattle? Exactly. Nobody, right? Cattle? Oh, wait. oh, we got we got cattle. One cattle guy. Just one. Who are you pointing to? Just call him out. I mean, you know what I'm saying. Prove it. Nobody? Okay, anyway. Not many people own cattle, right? Let's just go with that. The idea of throwing out like like the, the scriptures do in that passage in Psalm chapter fifty that the cattle on a thousand hills. We're not as much an agricultural-based society where everything was about how many cows you had and how that put you in the social strata. Maybe in our neck of the woods a few years ago, we had a lot of lobster fishermen in here, so we could say, he owns the lobster and a thousand traps. And we would say, ooh, I like that, teacher. That'll work. Maybe, you know, many seasons coming, right? Exactly. Did I hear a groan? Yeah. Nonetheless. We, we might get that. But, but really, in some ways, that just doesn't connect to us because that's not how we live. So, so let's do something maybe... Another verse of Scripture that could give us a different perspective. Deuteronomy chapter 10, 
verse 14. Listen to what it says. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heavens of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. What does God own? We got heaven and earth, but then he throws that extra little phrase in there. Not only heaven, but the heaven of heavens. It's even more than just heaven. It's the heaven of heavens. You know how huge the universe is? The ever-expanding universe? Massive, unfathomable. Hubble Space Telescope sent out in there, sent out in orbit so they could take pictures from that perspective that we can't take from inside the Earth's atmosphere. And it comes back with some amazing images. If you just, I mean, just go online and look on the NASA site or the Hubble site and see some of the images that it has captured. They are remarkable. The, the, the stuff that it can see and transmit and the things that we've learned by, by studying the images captured by the Hubble Space Telescope. And this verse says, as far as Hubble can see, guess who owns it? it all. And he owns it differently than you and I own it. We own stuff. We talk about what we own. We have deeds or titles to stuff that we own. And maybe even we we have ways to make a living. And and when we go about making our living, when we go about doing the things that we do to somehow create riches, to create wealth, everything that we do that creates wealth is dependent on something that's already there. For instance, if you are a let's see, I don't know, I don't want to pick on anybody. Particularly, so do we have any painters here? Okay, good. I mean, like professional artists. Okay, good. See, I'm just gonna make it right. Professional artists, you can paint some amazing things, but your art, your creation, is limited by the size of the canvas you have, and by the number of colors that there are, and by the medium by which you do it, and all of those things that you use to make, whether it be oils or pencil or whatever other. Uh, instruments used to create with, all of those are something that you had to get. You didn't come up with them. You don't come up, you might say, with a new color. You might make the ones, you know, the three, what are the three primary colors? I always get this wrong. Blue, yellow, red. Blue, yellow, thank you. Ask the elementary teachers what colors that they get for three. Blue, yellow, and red. Yellow, and green, and green. I knew that. Okay, good. We have, but we can't, we can mix and match and we can't create anything new. God He's not limited in that. When he creates, if he wants a new color, he can make a new color. If he wants a bigger canvas, he can create it. He creates, uh, the, the Latin phrase is ex nihilo, out of nothing. There's nothing, and God makes stuff. And that's different. So when it says, he, when we say he's, he, he has the depth of the riches of God, it means everything that ever was somehow owes its very existence to him because he's spoken in, into being. And if that is somehow not enough for him, he can just speak some more stuff if he wanted to. There's nothing that limits God in any way. And so the depths of the riches of God, that's hugely important to us because anybody have bills? Bills. Anybody got bills? Hey, my daughter's going to college. Uh, One month from today, August 19th, we head up the highway to take her to college. going to be exciting and all those other things that it's going to be. But do you know what I've learned about college? I have learned some things. Like, for instance, every letter I get from them, there's a dollar figure on there somewhere. 
congratulations, you've been accepted to our university. Now send us a deposit. Which, by the way, I've never seen that deposit show up on any of the statements that have been generated this week. You should ask them about that. Shouldn't I? Yeah, okay. Do you want to bring your car and park? There'll be a fee for that. Oh, and not to mention the meals and dorms and tuition and books. Holy guacamole. College books. We've done that. Been no good. But you look on the, you know, you pull up the course. And say, hey, here's a biology book for $200. Like, really? It's the 14th edition. Supply and demand. Thousands of colleges. You would think it would go down a little bit. What is that? All that. And it was worried. How are we going to pay for college? If you've been there, you, you know, maybe you're still there. You're like, how do we pay for that? Like, that's not it. And we need to understand those normal things for us that stress us and weigh us down. Those are nothing to God. There's no debt that is beyond God. There's no dollar amount you can come up with, no number of zeros you put after that dollar sign that in any way would trouble God. We don't even understand the depths of the riches our God. And so when we hear Paul just wax eloquent about that, it's as if we need to be reminded what stresses and worries and keeps us up at night to God is nothing. Jesus says, consider the birds. What about them? Consider the lilies of the field. What about them? That they don't go to all the trouble we as humans do. They don't fret and stew and plan ahead all the, the ways. They don't they don't sow and plant the crops, but nonetheless there's food. They don't have the 401k. They didn't have to go online and apply for Obamacare or whatever else it was. They just, God takes care of them. How much more is his point, isn't it? He says, consider them, now consider yourself, and how much more does God care about you? That if he takes care of those creatures that way, won't he also take care of you? of our time do we spend fretting over things like that? How much of my time do I spend fretting over things like that when my father is the king of kings, the, the king of all the universe, who has this depth of, of riches that at whatever point I can trust him with whatever need I have. That doesn't mean be wasteful. It doesn't mean I can be crazy or extravagant. It just means I can trust him. And that takes maybe a little pressure off. You know what else he has depth of? Verse 33 says, not only his depth of his riches, but his depth of the knowledge and wisdom of God. In fact, some people put those together, the riches of his knowledge and wisdom. You might be reading the translation that says that, but other ESV kind of separates them a little bit. I wanted to make that point that way. Translations here, you know, that sort of thing. But the depth of the wisdom and knowledge of God. What does that mean? It means There is nothing that God doesn't know. Of all the books ever written, and even the ones that haven't made it into print yet, every word he knows, of all the things that that would have been discovered and are yet undiscovered by science, he knows them. The depth of his wisdom and his knowledge, there's no end to it. There's nothing outside of God's Realm. In fact, uh, we, we read a 
this was a, it wasn't really a book. It was more of a printout that our professor gave us in, in college. Um, and the title was All Truth is God's Truth. And the point of that whole article, it was a pretty long article, was that no matter where we go in our world and the things that we find out and the things that we learn, none of that's news to God. Because anything that's true owes itself to he who is the truth. There's nothing true that we as God's people have to be worried about, in fact. There's no truth out there that you and I have to shy away from. Now, that doesn't mean you and I know all the truth, by the way. But we know the one who does. And so here's a wonderful answer. Because people will press us on this. We can talk about science and religion and all that stuff. And there's a supposed conflict between the two. But you know, sometimes we as Christians just need to wait for science to catch up with God. For instance, you hear the Human Genome Project? Yes, kind of a mapping of the human genetic code. And, and they've done it. And, and humans apparently, as they've done, as I understand, they've, they've done all this stuff and researched it down. And, and, and no matter what ethnicity or background they, 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 they study, 99.9% of all human genetics are identical. And science decided maybe that means they all share a common ancestor. And I say, welcome to Genesis 1. doesn't mean I have all the answers or know everything, doesn't, but, in, but God does. And so I can say, when things out there don't add up and don't make sense, and, and that fact doesn't, no, I can say, I don't, I don't know. Great question. I don't know. I don't know. Turn to your neighbor and say, I don't know. See, we're practicing. It's not about you, and I don't know. We're far too quick. Perfect answers. First Corinthians chapter eight, chapter three, verse eighteen. Now, this section of scripture tells us: Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. Imagine that. So let no one boast in men. Listen to this part. For all things are yours. Whether Paul or all these people that they follow, whether Paul, Paulus, Cephas, the world, or life, or death, or the present, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's, is the next part of that section. All of this stuff out there, all truth, we don't have to be afraid of it, because it has its source, its origin, in he who knows everything. And boy, does he know everything. We just saw, have, have you been following the uh, New Horizons Pluto probe? Anyone? Or just us NASA geeks? Fascinating. Some of the pictures that they're coming out, apparently Hubble and New Horizons. Do you know how long it took, by the way, that probe to get to Pluto? They launched it in January 2006. January 2006. And off it goes. Nine plus years to get to the place where it can take pictures of Pluto, which may or may not be a planet. I just know it's Nikki's dog, and I love her. All of that, and that's our 
solar system, the furthest planet, I have to do air quotes now, right, planet in our solar system, took nine years to get there. And if you go beyond our solar system and you think about our galaxy, the Milky Way, and, and the, the size of our galaxy and how immense it is. And we said earlier, the size of the universe, our galaxy, one of just an, un, an unimaginable number of other galaxies equally as unfathomably vast as ours, speeding around in the universe, this ever-expanding universe as we're learning. And there is nothing, even on that scale, that escapes God's notice. Every, every star, every planet he placed in orbit, he knows its temperature, he knows everything about all of that. The depths of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, nothing escapes. Scripture says he measures the universe with the span of his hand. What does that mean? What do you measure with the span of your hand? Not much. You're going to build a house by using this to measure? I mean, if you are and you do, I'd really like to see it from, from the outside. You know, that's, that's pretty interesting. What do you measure with the span of your hand? Not much. Something that's pretty small in comparison to you, and God measures the universe that way. Remarkable. But let's go the other way. We have all this, uh, this physics that's getting into the smaller and smaller and smaller pieces of matter. The different theories about not just the atom, but what makes up the atom. Not just what makes up the atom, but what makes up what makes up the atom. Protons, neutrons, electrons, and now we get into string theory and other sorts of things that are out there. Subatomic particles. Remarkable. God knows all of that as well. There's nothing. Antimatter, isn't that fun? Now apparently the universe is made up of a lot of nothing, or at least the opposite of something. That doesn't surprise God. God doesn't go, man, I wish I would have known that. That would have saved me a lot of trouble years ago. No, none of that catches him by surprise. None of that puts him on the defensive. We need to understand the depths of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And Paul, as he's written this book of Romans, and you know what he said over and over again is, here's a fun thing. Hey, man, people, human, you guys mess up a lot. You mean well. I don't even know if he actually makes that point so much. But you mess up a lot. But don't worry. Because even that didn't put God off. That didn't somehow make him go, Oh no, what am I going to do? Mankind's doomed. He had a plan for that. He knew it was coming. And he was ready for it. And he put into effect the things that would bring about our salvation. Because his the depths of his wisdom and knowledge. And we begin as our finite minds try to grapple with the, the overwhelming amount of information that's coming our way and the more that's been found out by science that we just can't even begin to, to, to fathom. That's dropping the bucket compared to the infinite God who spoke it all into existence and he measures it out with the span of his hand. What are the depths of the riches and the wisdom the knowledge of God. And then, then we come to this next part in this phrase where it says, not only the depth of his riches and knowledge, but in, at the end of 11, it says, how unsearchable his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out. 
I think the ESV used the word inscrutable, how inscrutable his ways. What does that mean? It means you can't scrutinize the ways of God. And that's tough for us. That's hard for us to deal with because we want to think about life, the universe, and everything. We want to find purpose. We want to find meaning. We want to find some sort of connection between what seems like these terribly random things that happen that don't make sense to us. Anybody here say sometimes life just doesn't make sense? Good. Then I don't feel so alone because it doesn't. But for God, it always makes sense. How inscrutable His ways. And I think about in this section, not this verse, but a few verses later, it quotes from the, the book of Job. You remember Job. What a incredible story that is. Job who lost everything. I mean, bad news after bad news after bad news comes his way. He loses his wealth, loses his children. He has left his wife who says to him, Job, just curse God and die. Thank you, honey. Love you too. And in that just got to be wrung out state, In the book of Job, we have what is in effect the give and take, the conversation between Job and God. And in Job chapter 38, God answers. One of the times God answers Job about the the situation that he finds himself in. And he says this, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? That's a a pretty low blow to start out with from God. Dress for action like a man. I will question you. When God says, I will question you, be afraid. Be very afraid. And you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And he goes on and on and on from there, questioning Job. Like, hey, look, I was there. I did this. What you got? Job, you're going to question how I do things? What do you know? How can you, from what place can you stand and say, I know. See, I think over and over again, Scripture wants us to feel small. We want to feel big. We want to feel strong. We want to feel in control. And as you read the Bible, more and more we see how small we are in relation to God. James puts it this way. We are like a mist. Here today and gone tomorrow. Romans chapter 9, verse 20, talks about who are we to say, to the one who made us. Why have you made us like this? So many times in Scripture we see that, that God is, is just making us realize our smallness. Anybody like the Lord of the Rings besides me? Lord of the Rings are awesome. We could go, the, the Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring, Two Towers, The Return of the King. It's like 100 hours of movie if you got the extended edition. I have the extended editions and they're marvelous in my sight. Um, but you got like a week to watch them. And then, uh, I guess Peter Jackson went all, you know, uh, George Lucas on us and gave us a prequel, The Hobbit. Now, we could talk a lot about The Hobbit because it's just a wonderful book, and I don't know what they did to it. But nonetheless, turned it into three movies as well. Actually, there's about 18 to 20 hours of footage if you watch the three Hobbit movies and the three Lord of the Rings movies, which is what I might have to do this afternoon. Forget Cinderella. Cinderella's out. Sorry. There's a trilogy of Cinderella. It's got to go. We need we need uh, ints and orcs and elves. Oh my. Okay, maybe not. But it would. 
Remarkable stuff. Now, let's, let's say this. Let's say you knew nothing about that movie. You're like, yep, preacher, you got me. I know nothing about those movies. And let's say I said, okay, we're going to go into a theater, and I'm going to show you like five seconds of those six movies, about 20 hours of video. And you go in, I said, you ready? Five seconds. Turn it off. Okay, come out. Explain to me the story of The Hobbit and The Lord and the Rings. How many of you could do that? Okay, it looks like it's about jewelry. Is it about jewelry? Maybe, maybe. It's a ring. It's about midgets with hairy feet. Yep, sounds about that too. But tell me the story. What's happening? What does what that piece of jewelry, what do those midgets have to do, those hobbits, have to do with anything? Hobbits and sticks, right? Yes, okay. Obviously, that section knows the movie. I'm going there. Everybody else not so much. It would be foolish to be able to understand the story and what's going on and all that's happening there in just a few seconds. And that's us. Our life is like a few seconds in this eternal God's span of, of history. And somehow we, in our few seconds, think we've figured out the whole story. That we can question the one who was there before it started and who will be there after it wraps up. In fact, he's the cause that started it and he's the fulfiller, the the author and perfecter who will wrap it all up and put a bow on it at the end. And we want to, in our limited, tiny little scope of time, question him. And God says, my ways are inscrutable. You cannot do this to me. Let me ask the question this way. Have any of you ever begged God, prayed and pleaded with him to do something that years later you looked back and said, I am so glad, God, you did not do that for me? Put your hands up. I mean, really, seriously. We're all morons. At the time, it's all we wanted. And we were certain it was right. And with the benefit of perspective, we saw maybe God knows, after all, what's best for me. doesn't mean I shouldn't ask. It doesn't mean I shouldn't cry out. doesn't mean I shouldn't seek Him. He gives me that right. He encourages me to come to Him with whatever. You've opened the book of Psalms and page after page is David at times begging God for relief. And then at the end, after saying, God, why has this happened and why won't you come to my aid? How does the end? It seems like every psalm. But God, you're God and you're smarter than me and I trust you. Over and over again is the the message of the psalms. And that should be our, our reality. We cry out to God. We beg Him. But we don't pretend like we sit in judgment over Him. Does bad stuff happen? Yes. To the best of people? Yes. But when you read the Bible, you know what you see? Bad stuff happening to the best of people. Life is messy. And from Genesis to Revelation, God says to us, I'm in the mess with you. I haven't left you to the mess. I'm with you in it. Trust me. Trust me. And why can we trust Him? Well, if we just go on, we see verse 34, who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been His counselor, who has ever given to God 
that God should repay him. Why should we trust him? Because God is the only one that is entirely self-sufficient. God doesn't need you and me. There's nothing you and I bring to the equation that somehow completes God. If he needed you and I to complete him, he's not much of a God. And there's the struggle because we've too often bought into that idea, this narcissistic thing, that if we are just good enough, if we're just really good, we cross off or check off the things on that list that we're supposed to do. Somehow that makes God happy and He'll bless us. But here's what you and I both know. Sometimes we've checked off every box and tragedy still happens. And you might say, God, how, wow, what? God, I, but God, I. But God, I. I've been, I've been reading my Bible. I've been praying. I've been in a Bible study group. I've been going to church, and that guy just talks forever. But God, I. And there's nothing you and I bring. There's nothing we have that somehow completes God. There's nothing that, that it says here that God has that we have given to God that God somehow owes us for. There's nothing we bring to the equation that puts Him in our debt. Rather, when we grasp that sometimes difficult truth, us up to realize the the grace that has been given to us. There are those who would and who do scoff at the idea of God, mock and laugh and deride Him. And the irony is the very breath that they breathe to say those things is simply theirs by the grace of our great God. There's nowhere we can go that we don't see all the incredible blessings that we have been allowed to And why is that? Because he ends verse 36 by saying, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Psalm 23 is a great passage we talk about a lot. How does it start? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Oh, I like where this is going. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. What's next? I actually forgot. I wasn't quizzing you because I couldn't remember. (laughs) He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. Keep going because I'm lost. Wait, time out. Back up three words. He leads me in paths of righteousness for what? For his name's sake. You can really put that phrase from the beginning. It's building to that point. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Why? For his name's sake. He makes me lie down and drink. Why? For his name. Over and over and over again. Why did God do any of that? For his name's sake. Do you see how that idea could change the way we think about things? That God 
is self-sufficient and has this understanding that the greatest thing in all of the universe that he could do for us is to give us himself. From the very beginnings of Scripture, we see that idea that God has been acting in history for his name's sake. Not because there's something worthy in us that he's rewarding, but for his own glory, his own sake. He says that he didn't destroy Israel. Remember, he has this conversation with Moses, and he's like, Moses, I want to start over. These people are stiff-necked. Just throw them out. I'll start with you, Moses. You'll be the new one. We'll start a whole new thing. And, and Moses has this discussion. He says, God, you can't do that, because what will they say? You brought them out here in the desert to die and all that sort of thing. And, and we know, why did he not destroy Israel? Ezekiel 20, for the sake of his name. In Psalm 106, you know what it says? He, why it says he saves mankind, he saves you and me. Any guesses? There's a theme developing here. For the sake of his name, for his name's sake. In Exodus chapter 14, why did he harden Pharaoh's heart? It's not a hard question. For his name's sake. In 1 Samuel chapter 12, he says, I began the monarchy in Israel. Even though it was kind of this one weird thing, he began it for his name's sake. In 1 Kings chapter 8, the temple was dedicated. Why? For the glory of his name. 2 Samuel chapter 7, Israel became great among all the nations for the sake of his great name. Malachi 2, he says, I've destroyed Israel, taken them into captivity because they did not give glory to my name. And if he, excuse me, Matthew chapter 5, it tells us that Christ comes and our Christian life can reflect the glory of the name of God. In Ephesians chapter 1, it, say, it says we are saved to the praise of his glorious grace. In 2 Thessalonians, it tells us the second coming when Jesus returns is to consummate all things for the glory of his name. Do you think somewhere in that story the name and the glory of God is important? And why does that matter? What is the reason that we should camp out as Paul does and break forth into this poetic thing for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever because if God is in fact all of that that means everything he tells me all that he's commanded all that he's revealed to me is for my good we have some commandments do you like commandments in fact what was number one I'm getting out my list Enjoy telling others what to do. What was number 15? You have to be in control. And God comes along and says, Thou shalt, and thou shalt not. And as we said last week, from the time we're knee-high to a grasshopper, what do we say? No. Wasn't that every kid's first word? Probably because that's what they hear the most, right? No, 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 don't do that. From the very earliest ages of our life, we're, 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 there's something in us that just kind of resists authority. And God is the one that we think, and so many people look, and he is, as the phrase goes, the cosmic killjoy. He's given us these commandments just to limit us and to keep us from things. In fact, isn't that what, in the Garden of Eden, the serpent said? Oh, you will not surely die. But God... He knows if you eat of that, you will be like him. And he just wants to keep you down. And there are a lot of people that, that, that it's the original lie that is still out there. God's just trying to keep you down. All those commandments, 613 of them and all. No, I'm not saying we have to keep all 613. That's another sermon for another day. But nonetheless, 
all those things that God, we have these things, we say, oh, and we rebel against them because we're convinced God's just trying to keep us from something. And no, if God really does everything for the glory of his name, and God is truly all that we've said he is, he's rich in, in wisdom and knowledge, his ways are inscrutable. If God has been for us and gives us those commands, we can say all of those things are for our good. And so we can follow them knowing that the end result is a deeper and more fulfilling and better life, not something cut off from us. We talk about a lot of things that morality has said are, you know, our culture and such moving in ways where promiscuity of all sorts is on the increase and the sexual revolution that started years ago and continues full force today, that may be the the one that would resonate the most with our culture that people would say, oh, those are antiquated ideas about sexuality, only this and only that and only in marriage. Forget about that. No, and if we believe God is for God and God is the greatest, wisest, bestest thing in all the universe, then we understand God's ways aren't to limit us but to allow us to have as we said a few minutes ago, right after we sang that song, Thrive, I have come that you may have life, and life what? Abundantly full. God is for us. And what's the second implication? If God is for God, then it's not about you. Isn't it going to start there? Isn't it so great it's not about you? Believe me, it's so great it's not about you. Because I look at you for a little bit on Sundays, and if it was about you, I'm out of here. And you would say the same to me. Anybody get fired up about anything ever? Can I tell you my fired up story this week? I think I've told half a dozen people this story. I feel bad for the people in the nursery this morning. Are they nice people over there? Okay, good. Was that a gas station? Helping somebody who came to us and said, hey, you know, I need some gas. I'm trying to get some. I said, yeah. We'll go to the gas station. I'll, I'll put some gas in your car. We're there, and they had, you know, done the whole thing at the pump, and they, they were finishing pumping, and we were talking. Like, as the gas tank was going back, and about that time, an RV pulls in, pulling a car. And this is one of the stations. It's a speedway, so it's kind of right there on US-1. And it was a pretty long vehicle, and pulled in behind us. And, you know, we were talking for a minute, and then I hear that wonderful the dulcet tones of the RV's horn. Beep, 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 beep. And I look back and go, I guess they want us to move. We almost literally just put the thing back on the pump. It wasn't like we were there for 30 minutes shooting the breeze. Just, and, and beep, beep, and kind of bothered me. But I, I was ministering in Jesus' name, so I had to keep it together. And so I told this person, get in your car, you need to move out of the way. Obviously, they need to get up here. Obviously, they need to get up here. And so the RV pulls up. and doesn't just pull up to the pump, but pulls past the pump, because apparently they wanted to put gas in the car they were towing behind the RV. And so the RV pulls through the pump and is blocking the exit from the Hess or Speedway station into the Family Dollar, as well as access to US-1 on that whole side of the station. And there's a line of, you know, there's parking right there again by the, the dumpster, and then there's parking. And everybody in there, they can't get out. They, they can hardly back up. I know, I felt the same way. Amen. Uh, they can't back up. They can't get out. And, and, I'm, and, and I'm like 
sitting in my car. I'm getting, I wanted to go over there and say, oh, here's the best part. And then the dude driving the RV gets out, and he ain't wearing no, nothing but a little pair of shorts, and he had no right to be nothing. Else. He was not young and male. He was old and fluffy and a little hairy. I hope he's not here today. No. And, and I just wanted to go over and say, listen, I was the one standing there, and you came up behind me and beat and couldn't you have at least had the common courtesy? I understand you had a big vehicle. You could have, would it have hurt you to take 15 seconds to, to have your wife step out of the RV and come and say, listen, we're kind of large and we're sticking out. Would you mind moving if you're done? And, of course, the answer would have been yes. But then, not only to be rude to us because we were in your way, you put your big old thing in the jigger in everybody's way. And righteous indignation welled within me. And I just quietly got in my car and left and told everybody about it since. Because it's not about me. Can't you tell by this story? It was about something. But here's the point. There really is a point. I promise. I feel like it's about something. Okay. If it's about you, you're going to spend your life ashamed of it. Because everything becomes personal if it's about you. Whether it's somebody I never met and will probably never see again parking his RV and beeping his horn. Or whether it's the neighbor whose tree grows on your side of the fence. If any of this is too close to home, I'm sorry. I'm just kind of making this stuff up. Whether it's the co-worker who plays the music at their workstation just a little too loud. People are pointing now. That's never good. If it's all about you, it's going to be a long, hard life. But if it's not about you, what does that let you do? If it's not about you, it's not about your glory, your comfort, your life. If it's about a God who says, all that I am is for you, and all that I've done in history is to your benefit, how does that change your life? Does it change it remarkably? Does it change it fundamentally? Does it say to you, I can just live and breathe and enjoy rather than let every little thing, and there are a lot of little things, overwhelm me? That's what we as God's people can know. And that's how we as God's people can live. And that's why I think Paul busts out at the end of chapter 11 with this incredible doxology. And what does he say in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2? Therefore, keep going. I know this one. I'm just being silly. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your spiritual act of worship. If all of that is true, then what does that make me? How do I live my life? living sacrifice. That is my act of worship. 
not just coming to a building, listening to music, raising my hands, singing songs, opening the Word of God, looking and studying, whether in big groups or small, whether on Sundays or Thursday nights or whenever else it happens. No, my life is set as a living sacrifice because it's not about me. And every day I have to get up and remind myself to lie on that altar and allow the God who it is about to instead have his way in and through me. You remember when your kids started to walk? Wasn't that a fun time? You know how like the kids, the first, are always amazing? And those first steps are incredible. They're pretty amazing, right? You have them recorded somewhere. You wrote down the date. You were there ingrained in your mind. You just know it. Let me ask you this. That first day when little Johnny or little Susie started to take that first step and maybe a second and gravity eventually got the best of them and they fell down, did any of you say, well, you do that? (laughs) Two steps, really? That's all you got? I'm taking that to mean no one. You celebrated that. It was something. You didn't say, you know, I really appreciate how hard you tried, but that was a colossal failure. And I just can't wait for the day when you're 20 and able to take more than two steps on your own. Because we know 20 has no problems except walking. what if I said to you, God is Father. I read that somewhere. And when he looks down at you, he looks at you the same way. Are you going to fall? I do. We all do. Is it to look at this intellectually one thing, but Tuesday afternoon at 3 o'clock a different thing? Am I going to wake up every day and be that living sacrifice and put my rights aside? No. He went good to know. As Paul knew, having built the case of how sinful all of us are, that he could still say this and still say, let's revel in the God who loves us enough that he sent his son Jesus, who gave himself to us so that when we fall, we will. There is hope and forgiveness.